Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. Today, it is my great pleasure to welcome Brad Stangetta to the show. Welcome, Brad. Hey, thanks, Jeremy. Really happy to be here. He is the Senior Vice President of Sales at Alita, a customer experience management company. Today, we're going to have a wide-ranging conversation around, oh, goodness, all things, but outbound prospecting, probably a little bit of hiring, a little bit of learning. And I also have my co-host on with me today, Amanda Georgioff. Welcome, Mandy. Hi, Jeremy. Hi, Brad. Thanks for having me. Super excited about it. Brad, one thing that did strike me as I was going through your LinkedIn profile is that you actually list out a number of licenses and certifications. Are you like a continuous learning junkie? Is that why I see stuff on there? (laughs) Good question. Funny you zeroed in on that. That's a relatively new add to the LinkedIn profile. I thought I wasn't doing enough justice with all the uh, trainings I've done over my years. You know, having been doing this now for, you know, just north of 20 years, I feel like I've been through them all. So I don't know if I'm a junkie, but I do think they all have their place. It's just really important to to zero in on a system and kind of create that system as your own and wanted to uh, to throw that on there. So the folks that I'm actually interviewing, you know, they get to check out my profile and see kind of what we're running over here at Alita. There's two schools of thought, right? One is run a system. So you show for example, the force management system on your profile, the Sandler system. And some people will run like the system in a very focused way. Other people will create a system mm-hmm. and they will take the best pieces, right? Of force management, of Sandler, of Miller Hyman, of insert, you know, methodology. Which which camp do you fall in? More the run the system or more the put the best pieces together? So two things. Number one, I run a qualification system. I truly believe you pick one qualification system and that's your system. So we run Medic. We've been you know, working really hard to get that ingrained in, into the business. But outside of that, I think your sales process and you know, the various stages that you're at, they can be a culmination of, you know, I think, the best of all those systems, you know, whether it be the challenger system or you know, command of the message, which I'm a big fan of right now. You know, it comes down to what works best for your market that you're in, your sales cycle that you run, and uh, ultimately whatever helps you get the revenue across the line. I'd love to follow up on that, Brad. I am a VP of sales in our enterprise segment uh, and a former longtime scholar at CEB. When you think about methodologies in general, like you said, we ascribe to Medic for qualification. What advice do you have for sales leaders in terms of how you can how do you roll out something like that and actually ingrain it into your sales organization? Because you can train on it, you can introduce it. How do you actually get it into the day-to-day and, and make it sticky? I learned something you know, many years ago coming out of Xerox where I started was inspect what you expect. So if you expect people to be zeroing in on medic and who the economic buyers are and documenting you know, that entire decision process, then you've got not just yourself as a sales leader, but you know every one of your direct reports and, and sales managers have to put that as part of their inspection process. So whether it be the forecast call or the one-on-one, when you're doing deal triage, you've got to use the same language, right? And uh, that's how you start to build that muscle memory. Do you build dashboards around Medic and things like that? We actually built Medic right into our opportunity page in Salesforce. So you can't progress the deal 
without certain criteria. We've gone that far in building it right into you know the infrastructure that runs our, our whole business. Do your sellers push back on that? Of course they push back. And you know, rightly so. They should push back if they don't see value in it. But as soon as you start to triage deals in a certain way and you help uncover some blind spots for folks, they start to see those blind spots and recognize the gaps they need to close. And if it helps them get to a closed one deal faster, you know, they start to believe. One of your reps had something kind of interesting happen to them recently that kind of made big waves in social media. So can you fill us in on a little bit of background there? Yeah, really interesting. I've never kind of gone viral as a company. Never had one of my reps go viral in any way. Uh, But uh, we had one of our cold outreach emails, actually the last of uh, 12-step cadence, the breakup email. Uh, sent to a CEO of a very famous digital media brand where that CEO didn't like the fact that there was no subject line and decided to tweet that to her 200 to 300,000 followers and uh, the other millions of followers that the uh, individual brand has. So it's been quite the last 72 hours where this young lady on my team, who's I think probably about seven months into the job, maybe even less, where her entire photo, full name, cell phone number, email address were sent out to uh, the whole world. It's very uncool. I mean, you see this on LinkedIn from time to time. It's called SDR shaming. I mean, I vowed in my own social media like not to do that because I'd rather just give feedback directly to the rep which is actually a, that's good karma, you know, like that, that's good karma. It's terrible karma to go out and and just rant about it. If you're somewhere in the middle, at least block out the person's name and you may not agree with the practices. We study email response rates based on a whole bunch of factors, including whether or not there is a, a blank subject line, a one word, two word, X number of words. And when we looked at, I think about 5 million emails, the blank subject line, you know, I, I'm sure your rep wasn't even doing it as a tactic, but as a tactic is actually not that effective. An email with a blank subject line gets about a 10% higher response rate than the average. But if you have a one word subject line, I think you get a 40 or 50% higher response rate. So one word is actually better than blank. So it's not, you know, it's not even an effective tactic. Here's the good news story. Try to make the best out of a bad situation. I would say, you know, the young gal on my team, of the comments that have come in, whether it be Twitter, Instagram, or on LinkedIn, have been super supportive and have condemned the shaming and the bullying of, you know, a very prominent woman CEO to this, you know, young SDR in my team. So that's great to see. But here's the crazy thing. You know, we've all got the stats. We track all of that. And funny enough, this is the one out of, you know, a 13-step cadence that was opened and was put out there and has been given the biggest reaction that we've ever had to, you know, whether it be a one word subject line, a no subject line, a TikTok video, uh, you know, a Didger video, whatever we do, this has got the most traction for our brand. And I think it sends the wrong message, right? It sends the wrong message that just a blank subject line may get you this type of attention. So, you know, at the end of the day, she set the wrong example. Oh, because yeah, because now people are going to see that and they're going to want the attention. So they're going to do the bad thing. She's probably got 10,000 no subject <laughs> line email. How is your employee doing? How is she handling all of this? It's been a rough 48, 72 hours for her, to be honest. And, you know, people that, 
you know, haven't walked a mile in an SDR shoes and use it as an opportunity to, to personally shame her. And I've asked her to take a bit of time off. She's back in today, but uh, it, it's been really hard for her as the leader in the, in the business. You know, I wanted to make sure I defended my, my people, right? I wanted to get to the facts and, you know, I think it was important that, you know, we did that. So I sent a response in on LinkedIn, you know, we, we kind of piled on a little bit without really trying to shame people back. So we took the high road. But also, you know, Jeremy, to your point, I wrote a response via email to the CEO that I probably had to delete seven times till I landed on what I thought was the appropriate response, you know, thanking her for a feedback. We're a feedback company. That's what we do. So all feedback is is a gift. And, um, you know, we took that approach and thanked her for her feedback, but defended our employees saying she was a very valuable part of the team. And um, I let her have some of the facts, you know, that unfortunately you chose the only message out of the seven emails that came through that didn't have a subject line. And guess what? I get these all the time. And I'm sure other executives get them all the time too. You know, if you're interested in, in, in having a conversation with us and learning a little bit more about w- what we do, you know, please contact me. I got the meeting the next day. So um, all's, all's good on this one. Yeah, we can leave that wrapped up with a bow there. And uh, one thing I want to switch gears on to is you guys are in, the, as I mentioned, are in the customer experience space for salespeople who hear the term customer experience, but don't necessarily know, like that may be a little vague for them. What does that actually mean? Yeah, so think about everything that you experience with a brand. Anytime a brand you want to give a brand feedback or you want to put something out there on, on Instagram or Twitter around you know a brand that maybe has done you wrong over the years. You know, Alita is an organization that we say puts truth in action, taking, you know, the voice of your most important stakeholder, which is your customer, and moving it into the center of that decision-making process. So allowing the brand not to just go out and get that broad feedback from an interaction, but also starting to study the consumer in a way where you can really get some deep insight to help the brand improve the overall brand experience, product experience, et cetera. On a related note, throughout all the different sales organizations that I've worked in, there's always this open question about how should sales feed information from customers and prospects back into the rest of the organization, back into the marketing team, back into the product team. What I'm curious for you guys, what sorts of processes, systems do you have in place to ensure that feedback you know, from customers and prospects makes its way into the other parts of your organization? Great question. What you're describing, Jeremy, is our platform in a nutshell for, you know, large brands. That's called closing the loop, being able to, you know, take feedback, action that feedback and make sure that feedback gets to the right people at the right time. We're making decisions to improve things. You know, for our business, you know, we're 350, 400 people. So we're a little bit more tight knit than, you know, these organizations that have 70, 100, you know, 300,000 employees out there. So it's a little easier for us. So we use our tool and we use, you know, in conjunction with our salesforce.com integration to, to do that. So if, you know, marketing uh, needs feedback on a particular campaign, we use, you know, a feedback tool to go out and pull our team and, you know, culminate that feedback and get it back to them. Brad, I was talking earlier this week with a sales leader at a, a really large organization and she was talking about this theme that she's seeing of the B2B buying experience mimicking more of a B2C. Business level customers are expecting different in-kind interaction, even in a B2B sales motion. Um, Responsiveness, access to information virtually, right? Chat, 
things like that. So that B2B buying experience is starting to have a lot of those B2C elements. Are you seeing that in your own sales organization as a CRO? Yeah, I think, you know, we know that probably within the last four years, I think it was 75% of the buying decision being done, you know, before you even engage with a seller. That's higher today, which makes it tough for outbound sellers to really, you know, get inside a sales cycle. So the idea of the entire organization being able to educate and create awareness for the brand and put out relevant content that actually shows how your product drives value for an organization is more important now than ever. And it's going to continue to mimic that buying experience, right? When I buy a car, I actually had this debate with my CEO earlier in the week. I'm not looking for the glossy brochure, especially not in COVID days, right? I'm sitting online, I'm, I'm doing what everybody else is doing right now. I'm, you know, I'm on my phone or I'm on my, my desktop really doing my research and not just listening to the brand. I'm listening to you know, everyone from an influencer to a friend to whatever. So you know, as, uh, as B2B sellers and marketers, we've got to make sure that we're also thinking that way, the way we can influence the decision process. Yeah, you just touched a, a nerve for me because I've been working on projects that require the use of different APIs. Most companies have their API documentation online. They've got their pricing online. Like you don't even, they're B2B, but you don't even really, I mean, they don't even want you to have to talk to anyone because it's a frictionless buying experience. And you know, one of the companies that I was interested in, their pricing page was a contact us form, a little old, it feels so old school to have to do that. And I had a call with one of their people gave them my use case and just said, hey, can you just like send me the API documentation and give me pricing for XYZ? And good news is he sent me the API documentation right away, but like was really evasive on pricing and then forwarded me to yet another person inside their company who started to requalify me on the same questions. And what I'm trying to buy is like, I feel is so basic with most other vendors. So, I mean, that is part of the customer right experience and the buying experience. And to your point about being so far into the buying process, I'm basically ready to write them a check, but they're making it actually hard for me. I see both sides. I'm actually in a situation as we speak that literally mimics this, but on the opposite, where we got looped into something that was was moving really fast. We had not influenced it, but we had an advocate bring us to the table, you know, at the 11th hour. And in a first discovery meeting, you know, a savvy procurement guy asked for ballpark pricing. And, um, you know, a fairly senior AE gave them some ballpark pricing. And uh, guess what? We are now out of scope on this project and trying to be held accountable to that ballpark pricing. So I see both sides of it, right? If you're in a more complex enterprise type deal, there's a lot of risk with throwing out numbers. I totally agree with you. And then I'm thinking to myself, how do I make it frictionless to Jeremy's point? How do I make it feel easy to do business with me, but balance what my sellers need in terms of qualifying an opportunity and not providing that ballpark pricing? I struggle with that. So much of it, I do think, comes down to the complexity of the solution, right? So in the case of API calls for a fairly standard, not exactly commodity offering, but you know, closer to commodity offering, that one, I would think they should be more transparent on. The best answer I ever got, by the way, so I, I do tend to ask for pricing early. And it, it, part of it is so I can disqualify myself if I just don't think that what I'm looking for has that kind of ROI. But the best answer I ever got was from a salesperson in the sales compensation management space. 
And I asked for ballpark pricing and her immediate response was, we're not the cheapest solution on the market. It was actually brilliant. Did you call her back and buy something? We did. I did ultimately buy from her, right? Because she set that expectation. And as a buyer, my usual thing is like, I'm not looking for, especially in the B2B world, but even in B2C, like I'm not looking for the cheapest solution necessarily. I do want to whittle it down to maybe, you know, two close alternatives. And I'd be willing to pay, you know, 15, 20, 25% more between one vendor and another. If it's 50% more than there, and I think they're relatively similar, that's a problem. But if it's within 25%, like I'm going to spend more on implementation, on maintenance, on training, on like these software purchases, the software that you spend the money on is, is like, it's funny that people nickel and dime in negotiation on this stuff because so little of the actual cost is in the software itself. Yep. It comes down to the value that you're going to get, right? And whether it's going to work. Yeah. In COVID, a lot of people have said, you know, customer success is the new sales for this moment in time. And I I do think about highly differentiated experiences that I've had where there's some people who just sort of sell it and forget it. That's rare. Then some of them will like check in periodically with you. How's it going? You know, it's like a sort of passive check-in, if you will. I mean, it's active, but it's sort of passive. The most valuable customer success experiences I've had, the most memorable ones are where they come in and they say, hey, like we're seeing how you're using this and you're not getting the full value out of it. You should do X, Y, and Z. And the X, Y, and Z is legitimate. They're not just trying to upsell me at that moment. They're legitimately telling me a way I can get more value. Couldn't agree more. We pride ourselves on our customer success teams here at Alita. And um, from my view, customer success should never be undercover sales reps right? I don't know if you you noticed that where they're only trying to get more seats or more licenses. You know, their job really has to be, how do they enable customers to get the most value out of the solution, thus creating more demand for your product internally, right? If it's sticky and it's integrated and people are getting value out of it, you're going to have a customer for life. And that's ultimately, you know, as a SaaS organization like you guys, that's what you want. I love what you just said there about sort of thinking about the dichotomy between the skill set required to drive value and drive utilization and adoption. And does that differ from a commercial skill set, right? Where you are not only responsible for understanding the value, but asking, earning the right and being comfortable asking for more business as a result. And those can be really different skill sets. One of the questions I always like to ask on these podcasts is about hiring. I know that you share my belief that that is as a sales leader, the most important thing that we do, right? Everything gets easier if you make the right hire. And conversely, uh, the inverse is also true, right? Uh, If you put the wrong person in the job, it can be a lot harder to to run a sales organization. How do you hire? How do you make that decision? What do you test for? What are your KPIs or questions you ask in interviews? I'm not sure if I've cracked the code yet, but we've been on a long journey on this front. I think establishing a strong hiring process internally with the right involvement from the right folks in the right amount of time. Because hiring, you know, in today's day and age, especially for the markets that I'm trying to hire in, it's an interesting dance. It's part selling somebody on why they would join a company called Alita that they may have never heard of and what the market opportunity is, and then validating whether they're actually the right candidate, right? So there's a bit of a delicate balance there. I've built out my hiring criteria over time. I've got six key things that I focus on that. (laughs) Our listeners can't see, but both Mandy and I just like raised our pens and put our heads down in our notebooks. Anything with a number, like six 
things. I'm ready to write, Brad. I'm sure you've heard many of them in the past, but I'll give you I'll give you them and then I'll tell you the six that you may not know. Um, so I look for a successful track record in something, right? On the BDA side, I need every one of our BDAs that we hire are SDRs. And I'm not looking for sales success because they would be interviewing for AE jobs. So I'm looking for a track record, whether it be you know sports success, art success, or something like that, where they've aspired to win something. Curiosity is the single most important thing I see for an AE and an SDR that helps you form a point of view. You need to bring value to every conversation. And if you're not curious about the other person that you're talking to, you will not bring any value. You'll just be like everybody else that they're talking to. Really, and I test for resiliency and the ability to work hard. Have they overcome things in their life that they've had to pick themselves up off the floor? And whether that's a big deal or you know, big loss in a sporting event, a big test that they failed. I like to, to test for resiliency. I like intelligence. You know, our product's a little bit ethereal. You know, you got to get people motivated to think that the voice of customer is important. So they need a level of intelligence. I think one that's probably on every sales leader's or should be on every sales leader's uh, list is coachability. So we actually test for coachability in our panel interview process. And then the sixth, and this is my little nuance to this that you probably won't read in a book. I call it reading the play. Wayne Gretzky says, you skate where the puck is going, not where the puck has been, right? It's the ability to go in and have a view and not just be myopic in your approach, but come in with you know, a peripheral view of what's going on in the organization, start to see the key players and anticipate what's going to happen in the conversation or the sales process. It's the single hardest one to test for, but you know, I've got a few questions that I like to ask and a lot of them center around our panel interview process. I actually try to see what they're thinking as we start to give them feedback and ask them some questions on how they think they did. And typically in a Zoom setting or a face-to-face setting, if you've got the ability to read the play a bit, you're reading everybody's faces, you're reading body language, and you can start to anticipate what people are thinking. You know, if you get that right, chances are you've got a good hire. Well, this is fantastic, Brad. Thank you for sharing all of that. Um, I, I did write everything down um, and I look forward to implementing some of your tips. How do you test for curiosity? We give them a very ambiguous task. And it's the third step in our interview process for AEs. It's the second step in our interview process for SDRs. And it's to go out and do research on a brand, build out their approach to a number of personas in that brand. And I'm not asking them to be an expert on Alita. I'm not asking them to be an expert on the brand that they're going to approach. I'm just asking them to build out their point of view. Quite frankly, a lot of people will come with, hey, I've done the Alita research on the website, I'm going to try to sell you a leader. That's not what I'm looking for. What have you learned in your research that will help you shape a point of view that will bring value to the conversation? And it's funny, there's a lot of people that that don't get that. They take the assignment and they think that they need to learn us and they need to learn the brand that they're going to pitch us to and they miss everything else. They haven't brought any value to the conversation. That goes back to curiosity. Have you gone above and beyond just looking at, you know, what Elite is doing or, you know, if it's Netflix as the account, what Netflix is doing and tried to bring a perspective to the meeting? That's one way I test for it. 
Brad. Thank you so much. So that was Brad Stangetta at Alita. If people do want to learn about opportunities at Alita or get to know you in any way, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, I'm happy to connect with everybody on LinkedIn and uh, hit up Alita.com. We're uh, hiring like crazy right now, right across North America. Awesome. Thank you, Brad. Thank you, Mandy. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Jeremy. My pleasure, guys. Thanks so much. Hey, Salespeople is a production made in partnership with Frequency Media. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan. This podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. Thanks for listening to the Hey, Salespeople podcast. 